Just an aside, the landscape for employers and employees as a result of the coronavirus pandemic is changing very quickly, so bear in mind that this episode was recorded on the 3rd of April 2020. Stay tuned for a postscript by Anton Duke at the end of the program. This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. When you go into the courtroom, you might feel a bit awkward. Bail is refused. You're out of order! The police is the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this witness. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to another impromptu episode of The Wigs. I am your host, Jim Minns. In this episode, The Wigs chat to employment law expert and barrister at State Chambers, Anton Duke. A very interesting conversation about industrial relations outcomes during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, without further ado, Mr. Stephen Lawrence, take it away. Well, Anton, thanks very much for coming um, on the show, mate. Pleasure. Now, I know you pretty well because we were um, in the same bar course in uh, 2015 Uh, But for the benefit um, of listeners, could you tell them a bit about what you do and who you are? Yes, I've been uh, at the bar for uh, about five years, practising out of uh, state chambers um, in the employment law space. Um, Before then, I practised as a solicitor. um, And before that, I had been employed by various employer organisations for the better part of 25 years. So my practice normally revolves around contracts of employment, Um, uh, all matters to do with uh, industrial issues, disputes, litigation, general protections, unfair dismissals, Um, and and these days mainly revolving around matters to do with uh, redundancies, termination, uh, to do with the virus. So, mate, unlike the rest of us who are, to a various extent, pretty under-engaged at the moment, are you one of these rare people that are actually quite busy at the moment? Um, unfortunately, I'm very busy dealing with uh, all manner of inquiries that come out of uh, the, the, the virus, um, ranging from some very small businesses that uh, people are facing the, the end of their livelihood, the end of their, their business careers as they know it, um, through to, to larger organisations that do have reserves but are wondering how they're going to get through the next um, three to six months. Mm. So, mate, there's obviously a whole range of issues, and I'll come to some of them specifically, but what's legally the situation, let's say, for an employee under a standard contract of employment who all of a sudden is employed by a business that is not able to operate because of uh, the public health crisis? Look, it's a, it's, a very, it's a very tough question because, of course, the Fair Work Act was not meant never designed for this kind of um, uh, uh, phenomena, phenomena to hit our shores. So the main uh, uh, section of the Fair Work Act that we've been trying to um, fit as a round peg into a square hole is the stand-down provisions uh, under the Fair Work Act, which says that you can stand down workers uh, where there is a stoppage of work, where there's some form of natural disaster, uh, where... Uh, through no fault of the employer, the business uh, is uh, stopped from working. Now, you can look at it from a a really broad perspective and say, we've got a pandemic. The pandemic is stopping people leaving their houses, is uh, causing a wide variety of panic. Um, But does that actually trigger the stand-down provisions of the Fair Work Act? Um, So 
the, the, stop, the stoppage that, that the provisions really refer to are uh, an industrial dispute. You can't get the widget in order to put into the car. There'll be a couple of days mm. and the employer, by benefit of the stand-down provisions, um, does not have to pay the workers for the time that they, are, uh, they cannot be usefully employed. So it's a very blunt instrument we're dealing with. So when, you deal, when you're, you're talking to an employee about what they're going to do in this very difficult and scary situation, um, the short answer is, is that the, the, the employee is probably going to have to cop some form of time off uh, for, for uh, leave without pay at least, potentially not be stood down because the provisions probably don't cover this pandemic at this stage until the government says you cannot go to work, then the stand-down provisions are not triggered for large sections of the of the population. Mm. They're triggered for Qantas and, and other large organisations where the government has said, no, stop flying, stop doing this activity, stop doing that. But for the general employee out there, um, the, the advice to many of my um, small and medium-sized businesses is, well, you've got to ask the staff to take leave without pay. Yeah, so what does that mean for the, the sort of in, accruing of, of entitlements such as leave um, and sick leave and long service leave and things like that? Those provisions still keep on uh, accruing because there's not a termination of the employment relationship. Uh, the accrual of annual leave, sick leave, long service leave um, will keep on being accrued for the employee. So whenever they come back in the next uh, couple of months, they, they will have the benefit of those provisions uh, of, of the Act. Is there a cohort of employees who aren't under the Fair Work jurisdiction, who are just under uh, common law employment contracts? A, a, a cohort that are under um, common law contracts uh, of employment, but the, the provisions of the, the Act generally cover all constitutional corporations and uh, when the changes were made in 2005, a whole lot of private sector employees were brought in by um, state enactment. So it's really the public sector that's outside of these, these provisions. Mm. Um, but um, it, it's a fair question. There's plenty of management staff that have been uh, set aside uh, as well in this process. Um, and uh, just like the GFC, when we were going through the GFC 10 years ago, um, that the advice is that, that everyone's got to take um, some of the pain in this process. Yeah, so what are the chances, do you think, of seeing, seeing Commonwealth legislation that tries to unpick all of this and basically impose a new legal standard to this unprecedented situation? Look, it, it, that is a, that's a very good question because as soon as the stand-down provisions... Uh, as soon as the Fair Work Ombudsman started to play around with their interpretation of the stand-down provisions and really narrow it, um, a lot of employers are scratching their heads uh, at, well, what, what are we going to do now if that's the government's position? So the Commonwealth, uh, uh, through the Fair Work Commission, has stepped in over the last probably week in order to change some of the awards so, for example, the restaurant award has recently been varied as of yesterday or, or, or two days ago, um, and that had some very far-reaching provisions in there about asking employees to perform work that is outside their classification and outside their pay grade. 
Um, so it's blown apart for at least six months what sort of work you will do in a restaurant if you're a chef and you are asked to wash some dishes. That's exactly what the employer can now ask you to do. Now, the reason why that's really quite interesting is because that's the only award that has been varied to that extent to affect the contract of employment. Uh, some of the other awards have been varied. The Clark's Award was varied uh, in order to change uh, the, the hours of work. Uh, so a workplace could vote on reduction of hours. That seemed like a pretty blunt instrument to me if you had to get the staff together in order to vote on the reduction and then inform the Fair Work Commission, whereas the restaurant industry uh, and the ACTU have, have, have probably really reached the heart of the matter, and that is what can an employer tell an employee to do? Can they tell them to cut hours? Can they tell them to change jobs? That really gets the nub of it. So the Commonwealth has come to the party through the Fair Work Commission to vary some of those very basic provisions. Um, but it's a good question because employment is not going to be the same in six months' time as it was prior to it. Someone said today that you've seen more change in the last three days in the Fair Work Commission than you've probably seen in the last three years. So, Anton, with these stand-down provisions that you've been discussing, when we look at one of the public health orders that's been made in New South Wales, that um, contains a direction from the Minister of Health that certain premises must not be open to members of the public, such as pubs, cinemas, casinos, a whole range of different entertainment facilities and so on. So would those stand-down provisions apply to employers in those circumstances, given that they've effectively got to close up shop, tattoo parlours and beauticians and a whole range of different businesses effectively are categorised under the direction? Would they all be caught by that stand-down provision? Yes, they're absolutely key uh, industries that, that will be able to make use of those stand-down provisions. So... The way that the Ombudsman uh, looked at it, and, and, and I agree with the Ombudsman's approach, is until the government tells you to close down, tells you that you can't perform uh, any work at that work site, that is what is going to be the trigger. See, the problem is for a lot of the businesses that I've been dealing with is uh, a deterioration in their, um, in their trade. So a lot of the, the retail businesses are, are now um, basically derelict uh, and empty, uh, so they, they'll have lost between 60 to 70% of their trade. Um, does that entitle them to use the stand-down provisions? It, it doesn't entitle them to do that. So mm -hmm. that's why that the, the Fair Work is, uh, Act is just such a blunt instrument uh, in this case. Uh, so we will be seeing some, some changes to the Act uh, after this is over. So, Anton, there's obviously a huge amount of people working from home. Um... I was just interested in what the occupational health and safety issues are with everyone working from home. Is the employer not liable for OH&S issues? Does it somehow then shift onto the employee? What's the situation there? Yeah, look, that, that's a good question as well. And uh, uh, everybody is, is now going uh, back to their... Uh, their rules to see exactly what it does mean. And what it means, Stephen, is, is that the employer is still responsible for when the employee is working uh, at home. The employer is meant to 
provide a, a checklist to the employee about how they should be working from home. Um, and like, like all the ergonomic changes that we went through in the late 90s and, and early 2000s, how to sit at your desk properly, um, how to hold the mouse, um, what sort of exercise you should be doing, uh, where the power cords are, um, making sure that uh, the, the space around you uh, is free of uh, slip and trip hazards. Um, they're the sorts of things that uh, the, the Safe Work Australia and the various uh, state bodies are, are really focusing uh, on. So um, if you trip over at home, then the employer is still as liable as if you tripped over uh, at the workplace. Now that provides uh, some uh, heightened uh, awareness from the employer. And a lot of employers would say, well, look, uh, if that's the risk, then I'm not prepared to take it. That's been the issue in the past. But now employers are just sending employees out in droves. They're, they're flocking out the door. If you can work from home, work from home. So um, there, there seems to be this attitude of, well, look, let's just clear everybody from the workplace and we'll worry about these issues later. But I'm sure there's going to be a whole lot of litigation that arises out of this from employers and employees that have just made the wrong call uh, in how to deal with these things due to the panic that, is, that has been caused. Um, one company I dealt with, um, I met with them, I think, on the 16th of um, March. It was a Monday, Monday at 11am. I met with them and their management team. And it was a bit of a joke. It was a bit of the, the virus was a joke. We were going to try and get a memo out to staff to talk about the coronavirus. Eight days later, the place is empty. Wow. The place is empty. Staff are working from home. Headsets have been purchased for them to work from home. The computer system has been upgraded. Um, any management staff can work from home um, with Zoom meetings. It, it was just lightning quick how this thing has hit and employers and employees have been making very, very difficult decisions. Is there a tension, Anton, between the OHS concerns that employers might have if they allow staff to or require staff to work from office premises, for example, because there's this heightened risk through social contact or contact in the workplace with other people of contracting the coronavirus. And so there's this tension between the OHS risks of sending everyone home and the OHS risks of having the employees at the workplace. Is that something that's operating on the minds of employers and so on? It, it, it does, and it, it varies from industry to industry. I mean, how do you tell the shop assistants in Baker's Delight to keep a 1.5 metre distance from themselves when they're serving customers? Or, or how do you tell the staff um, to, to wear a mask um, in uh, various instances where it, it, it does become slightly difficult to breathe? I don't know if you've had that mask on, but it does provide that difficulty to breathe. So... Um, I have had a couple of employers say that it, it, it has provided difficulties in those heated environments. So in your, your bakeries and other food outlets, it just provides another problem. So there's a myriad of problems, Felicity, that come, come into this that, that only manifest um, days after you try it. So employers are trying various methods, um, moving, moving computers, you know, a couple of metres apart, when we had this, this idea that you had to be four, four square metres or, you know, two by two apart, people had to be shifted up desks, moved to different rooms, new, new 
um, new rooms that, that um, were not ever thought of being used. People were packed in there. It's, it's been a very, very difficult time for, for um, everybody. The, the worry and concern on employees' faces in offices is palpable. Um, so everyone's just trying to, uh, I think, do the best that they, that they can. Um, with, with the OHS at work, of course, you can't get hand sanitizer anymore. Um, wearing masks and gloves that need to be changed. I don't deal in the, in the, uh, the health sphere, but I can't imagine what the OHS issues are like in the um, in that employment space. Yeah, well. So, Anton, if you're an employee whose business or whose employer is not stood down, but you can't uh, do your duty from home um, or at work now uh, because of the decision um, that's been made, is an employer able to force you to take leave, leave or sick leave? Or do they have to give you a special sort of leave? Yeah, look, that's, um, it's an interesting point because there, there is no ability for an employer to just say, look, <clears throat> I'm going to close down for six to eight weeks in order to try and get over this. If it's the employer's decision to shut the business because then the trade is deteriorated or they can't make enough money, um, then... There's nothing to relieve the employer of the obligation to pay that staff member. Effectively, you're saying to them, um, I, don't, I don't want you to do any work uh, and you still need to pay them. That then presents the uh, awful conundrum for an employer of, well, if the law doesn't allow me to change their hours or send them on, on annual leave for a period of time, what do I do with them? I have to make them redundant or terminate their employment. Um, and that's a conversation that some employers have been having. Um, there, there have been some employees that have said, look, I don't want to take leave without pay. I don't want to cut my hours. I can't cut my hours. I'm the only breadwinner now in the house. What is an employer to do in that situation? Mm. Um, <clears throat> luckily, the government stepped in um, a, a week or so ago with their job seeker payment that allowed employees that had even lost hours, had had, had their hours cut um, or had their hours reduced to zero. So effectively leave without pay. Mm. Um, the job seeker payment is open to them. So um, a lot of letters have been flying out the door to staff and staff have felt a lot more comfortable with the leave without pay option whereby they get the letter from the employer, fine, I don't have any hours, I'm going to go down to Centrelink and wait in the queue or wait on the line but I will get some form of recompense. So I'm not going to be out of pocket if I take this option. So the, the, the government in stepping in with the, the job seeker benefit and the coronavirus supplement made it, made it easier for employers to have that conversation with their employees. Mm. Anton, um, in terms of what, what about the opposite situation? What about where the, employee, the employer wants the employee to come in and work and the employee says, look, I just don't want to risk it. I don't want to come in. Yep, that's a, that's a very, very good question because that has uh, come up a lot, um, particularly from um, uh, overseas workers. There's been a lot of um, uh, Indian and Pakistani workers that uh, I've been dealing with that have um, franchise businesses um, and they've been, the fam- they've been told by their family members, I don't want you to go to work. I want you to stay at home or um, I want you to come home to um, Vietnam or India. Just- 
Is your mattress making noises it never used to? Or is it sagging, causing you to... Then it's time to get a new one. Get the best sleep at the best value with the Nectar Mattress. Prices start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a 365-night home trial, and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. Get on a plane and come home, which is a very difficult proposition. So if employees feel as though they are exposed from an OHS issue, uh, an OHS risk, then they've got to raise it with their employer. Is it good enough for an employee to say, I'm scared, I live at Rooty Hill, I can't get to Chatswood, which was a question I had this afternoon. Um, this young girl's dad didn't want her travelling on public transport. Um, mm. What does she do in, in that case? Um, well, unfortunately, the, the answer to that is, is that that employee is either saying that they don't wish to have any more further work with the business or they want to take some form of leave without pay from the business. But ultimately, there's not going to be any payment for that employee because they're choosing not to fulfil their contract of employment. So, Anton, I might just um, shoot you a few questions that listeners have put uh, to us on Facebook. Um, so Luke from Orange says, unfair dismissal. It seems like businesses are taking this opportunity to, to fire people the day after announcement without trying to look at other avenues to keep them on? Will there be a mass fallout or a mass unfair dismissal claim? My experience, Stephen, is um, that hasn't happened and maybe that's because of the, um, the, the sort of confirmation bias that I can give you today is that the good employers that really want the answers are um, getting advice and calling up um, and seeking the advice. So I've, I've spoken to the employers that are really struggling um, with the issue I haven't heard of too many employers that are, are really taking the knife to the workforce and saying, um, this is something that I can use in order to um, terminate large swathes of the population. One of the difficulties is, is that an unfair dismissal needs to be lodged within 21 days. So employees might be timed out if the terminations have been over the last uh, week or two, um, then they've got to lodge the claim within 21 days. So if there's going to be a mass panic at the end, a lot of employees are going to have to make some very good cases to the Commission, Fair Work Commission, in order to say uh, why they need to have time extended uh, on their unfair dismissal claim. Mm. Um, so so my, my view is, is that there won't be a, a wide uh, variety of people that come forward. Um, I think there will be a fallout from people that have been terminated um, in other spaces like general protections. So if the employee has uh, potentially um, been asked to reduce their hours and they've said, no, I want to work my 38, <clears throat> they're claiming a workplace right. And under the Fair Work Act, you cannot be dismissed or uh, uh, be injured in your employment or have a detriment caused against you by claiming one of your workplace rights. So I think that certainly is an issue. That likewise for dismissal has a 21-day time limit to it as mm. well. Um, but but I, I must say, I, I've seen nothing but um, uh, employers that are trying to do the right thing. Um, Amanda from Sydney asks, where does stood down ongoing employees stand once the business is back to running? Does the time stood down count as a break in service? If the stood down worker doesn't mind going back to work at that business, 
are they entitled to receive redundancy? Sorry, I'll start that one again. If the stood down employer doesn't wind up going back to work at that business, are they entitled to receive a redundancy? The, the employee, if they're stood down, will have an obligation to come back to the same job that they, that they left. The stand down provisions don't change anything about employment. Uh, the employee is still employed um, and uh, they could be called in at a moment's notice in order to keep on working. So if an employee at that stage chooses not to go back into work, then it's, then it's, it's highly unlikely they'd be able to claim a redundancy. A redundancy is where the employer no longer requires the work to be done by anybody. So it's really not the employee's choice about how they, how they do it. Um, it is, it's an important question that there's going to be a lot of broken relationships that come out of this. There's going to be a lot of people that are um, affected um, and whether they can then go back into the workplace. Um, you see it, people are avoiding each other in the street. They're avoiding social interaction. They're, they're, they're going to be um, dislocated from, from their workplace. Um, they're going to have a great deal of time uh, at home. So I don't doubt there will be some um, mental health issues that need to be solved out of this. But um, in answer to the question, the redundancy won't be open. The employee will have to go back to work. And this is a slightly different uh, variation on the question uh, from Jay uh, from Cessnock. What happens to employees who have been stood down, not made redundant, but then the company does not reopen? Therefore, the, em the employees were made redundant without receiving a redundancy pay. Um, the, the employee, um, look, you could, you could think about it, and I've had the question, um, <clears throat> can, we, can we close down for a few weeks or a few months and, and then see how we go? But at that stage, let's say you get into June or July and the, the uh, bakery business down the road decides to, to close up, then the employer needs to go through a consultation process <clears throat> with the employee mm -hmm. in order to tell them that the job is, is going to be made redundant. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's very unlikely that an employer will just be able to disappear into the night if they're doing the right thing. They will have to write to the employees that are uh, affected by the uh, major change, consult with them and offer them redeployment um, in order to get around any kind of uh, uh, payment for redundancy. There is, a, there is a section of the Fair Work Act when it comes to redundancy to say that an employer, if they cannot afford to pay the redundancy money, they can apply to the Commission for a reduction in the severance payment and it's up to the employer to prove that they just don't have the money to pay to the employee. That might be the result that employers say to the employee, look, I just don't have any money to pay your redundancy. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that could become quite an important question, Seven. Mm, okay, interesting. Lastly, uh, does the contract of employment become temporarily void? Is it a case of force majeure rendering the employment contract void? That's Darren from Aubrey. There's, there's been, as, as far as I've seen, um, absolutely no commentary on the issue of <coughs> uh, force majeure when it comes to contracts of employment, they're terminated um, in very defined ways. Uh, there's a lot of statute that's now involved. So there really is no room for the operation of a, a force majeure clause um, when it comes to employment related matters. Okay, well, thanks for coming on the show, Anton. I hope that you're not too yeah. busy.
And look, if you do get too busy, just remember there's lots of criminal law barristers who might be quite happy to receive a lucrative private employment brief, uh, not too complex, preferably. <laughs> look, there's, there'll, be, there'll be a little bit of it uh, coming out in the next uh, uh, few months, I think. Um, but really, the, <clears throat> the, the last thing I wanted to say about it was it, it's just a tragedy for, for em, employment. Who would have thought two months ago we'd be sitting here talking about this? Um, uh, business owners have watched their livelihoods disappear within a, a two-week period. Um, they are, um, from what I've seen, seriously emotionally affected by it, by saying to workers that have been in there for, for many years, I just don't have enough work for you. You know, they've been to their, their um, birthday parties, their weddings. Um, some cases they've been on holiday together. It's a it's a terrible time and um, it, it's fracturing a lot of relationships, unfortunately. Um, that that's my knowledge from the employment law sphere and um, in other spheres, it just must be just as bad. Mate, it's an absolutely extraordinary situation and thanks so much for coming and talking about it. It's been exactly. really well, really yeah. interesting and Thank informative. You. Thanks, Anton. Thanks, guys. This is a postscript to the podcast. I wanted to add a few more comments about three things. Uh, Firstly, the changes to the Fair Work Act. Uh, Secondly, dealing with some ramifications uh, from the changes to uh, employment and employment law. And then finally, just refer to a few uh, final thoughts. So in relation to the uh, first issue about the changes to the JobKeeper uh, legislation under the Fair Work Act, Uh, Some measures were passed under the Coronavirus Economic Response Payment and Benefits Bill and a General Omnibus Bill, which was called Measures Number 2. Now, these were passed in great haste uh, on one day when the Parliament was called uh, together. Uh, And basically what the legislation allowed uh, and enabled employers to do was to issue a JobKeeper enabling direction. So if employees were paid the amount under the JobKeeper rules, which is the $1,500 a week, then employers were going to be allowed uh, some uh, flexibility. Now, those uh, flexibilities were to temporarily enable employers to issue these JobKeeper directions, uh, which allowed employers to change the hours of work, uh, enabled employees to stand down employees and have them perform no work uh, or perform duties uh, of a different type uh, and uh, at a different location. So these were to enable employees and employers uh, to make agreements uh, also around uh, flexible use of annual leave uh, and also finally provided for the Fair Work Commission to deal with uh, any disputes. To enable the employer to change the direction Uh, give the direction uh, to change the hours uh, of work or issue stand-down orders, the employee had to be paid the amount of $1,500 per fortnight. The amendments are due to be repealed on the 28th of September 2020, so they are extremely time-limited in duration. Now, for the employer to qualify for the JobKeeper scheme, uh, the employer... uh, uh, must pay the amount of the $1,500. Uh, to do so, the employer must 
uh, consult with the employee or their representative before giving that direction. They must give at least three days' notice uh, of the change uh, and the direction must not be uh, unreasonable. So there are some safeguards that are uh, built into it, which also includes uh, fair work, the uh, Fair Work Commission being given a great range of powers in order to uh, deal with any uh, disputes that uh, arise. Now, bearing in mind uh, the uh, objects of the Act, which are uh, quite important to, re- to review this in, I just want to make one point, which goes to the success uh, or failure uh, of this direction being able to be made. So the objects are that uh, it's to make temporary changes to assist Uh, the Australian people to keep their jobs and maintain their connection to the employer during the unprecedented economic downturn uh, and to uh, give effect to uh, stand-down provisions and other changes uh, with regard to the coronavirus pandemic and the government initiatives to slow down the transmission of the virus. So it also is meant to deal with uh, this this stay-at-home direction that the government has given to, to the Australian people. Um, there seems to be a compulsion uh, in the legislation that compels an employee uh, to accept these changes, the stand down uh, uh, changes to their hours of work uh, and what work they do. But then we go to the rules uh, which require an employee to sign a nomination. Now, if the employee is eligible uh, from that employer, then of course they can't receive. Uh, monies from a second uh, employer, otherwise they would be able to net quite significant amounts. But it's far from clear what happens if the employee doesn't sign that nomination and that nomination form is available from the Australian Taxation Office uh, website. The legislation seems to suggest that an employee can be uh, stood down with some or no hours and directed to work at other duties, but if they don't sign the nomination, is it the position that the employee cannot be stood down or have their hours changed? Now, that question is important because, unfortunately, there has been some instances that I've heard where employees are are not going to accept the nomination and, therefore, where does that leave the employer? So we're left with this this, uh, lacuna, uh, possibly, uh, where the purpose of the legislation, the objects of the legislation, will be defeated Uh, if there are employees that don't sign uh, the nomination. Now, the explanatory memorandum is uh, quite clear about these stand-down directions, and it says that uh, JobKeeper uh, enabling directions are ultimately only valid if the JobKeeper payment is ultimately made to the employer in relation to that employee. If the employee doesn't sign that nomination, then it's uh, unclear that an employee... uh, An employer might not be able to stand them down, and that leaves uh, everybody in a very difficult uh, position. Now, the Fair Work Commission can uh, intervene uh, if there are disputes that uh, arise, and the powers that the Fair Work Commission uh, have are quite broad. Fair Work uh, can issue an order. Uh, It considers desirable to give effect to a JobKeeper-enabling direction. It could set aside or substitute the enabling direction or it could make any other orders it considers appropriate. So it's a very broad-reaching power that it has over uh, an employer's uh, business.
The legislation also allows uh, for an employee to reasonably request uh, to work secondary employment uh, at another job uh, or undertake training or professional development. And interestingly, an employer must not unreasonably refuse uh, that uh, request. That may potentially also be uh, legislated. Now, I just want to deal with some of the ramifications that might arise Uh, from uh, the legislation. Uh, Now, of course, the legislation doesn't cover casuals of less than 12 months service. Those employees are eligible for the job seeker payment. Uh, But uh, as the objects of the Act indicate, the employee will lose the connection to the workplace. Now, I would think that would be quite a large section of the casual workforce that has been employed for 12 months or less that will miss out on the job keeper payment. That will affect the long-term recovery uh, and it may even entrench uh, some uh, further casualisation in the recovery phase uh, that we will hopefully uh, experience. So um, I predict there will be increased casualisation of the workforce coming out of the uh, recovery phase. Uh, Secondly, interestingly, the amount of $750 a week uh, really does refer to the national minimum wage, which is currently $19.49 or $740.80 per week. That hasn't really been commented upon, but it's quite clear that this mark uh, has has not been, uh, uh, $750 has not been randomly uh, chosen, but it does embed a quite low-ball condition when it comes to minimum payments to employees that uh, could be on far higher amounts. Now, while the legislative directions uh, are temporary up until September this year, it seems as though, uh, and I would suggest that they could be extended to other uh, disasters that might uh, befall the Australian economy. Uh, why shouldn't the legislation be extended to bushfires, uh, floods, uh, recessions? We might uh, get a, a, a significant change out of the legislation um, uh, from these uh, changes that uh, Uh, meant to be limited to just the coronavirus. Now, finally, I just wanted to make some uh, comments uh, concerning the uh, practical nature and on-the-ground realities. Uh, Now, it it seems as though the uh, payments to employers uh, will be backdated, so employers must pay uh, all the employees the $1,500 a week, and that's clear from the the rules. Uh, The rules are one in all in. You can't select employees uh, or uh, unreasonably uh, say that some employees are not to receive the amounts. It's one in, all in. But that does raise the question of how can employers afford the backdated payments. Employers will need to fund uh, about a month's worth of wages before they receive any government monies at all. And that could be a significant amount of money. Why tie the flexibility that has been generated by the uh, legislation to the employer uh, payments? Uh, It seems as though this has actually increased business costs in this crisis uh, and employers will always be behind the eight ball when it comes to uh, monies. It seems that this is quite a, a perverse outcome. Now, while there has been confusion about the one in all in rule, uh, which has come out of the Treasurer's uh, rules, it means that employers cannot choose which employees will benefit uh, from this amount. 
So ultimately, uh, I would say that the perverse outcome in the scheme means that there might not be that many jobs uh, saved at all out of this process. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes.